Hello there, and welcome to the Lancet HIV podcast for October. This is the editor, Peter Haywood, and today I'm talking to Julia Marcus of the Department of Population Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Institute, and to Douglas Krakauer from Harvard Medical School and the Division of Infectious Diseases at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, both in Boston in the USA. I'm going to be talking to Julia about two studies on the use of electronic health records to assess HIV risk and to identify people who might benefit from pre-exposure prophylaxis. Both these studies were published recently online and received quite a lot of attention internationally, and they are now included in the October issue of The Lancet HIV. Just to kick off, the two studies are seem quite similar when you look at the titles and look at the abstracts, and there's quite a lot of common ground between them. Could you briefly explain the origins of these two studies and what the aims of your research were? PrEP uptake in the United States has been suboptimal compared to what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention sees as an estimated total population who may benefit from PrEP. So each of us was thinking about ways we could improve PrEP implementation by coming up with interventions to help clinicians in care settings to identify more candidates for PrEP, and ideally more efficiently. And Julie and I actually didn't know each other at the time of conceiving of each study, because Julie was working in California and I was here in Boston. But we each independently thought that electronic health records have a really rich amount of data that could be used to assess HIV risk, and that maybe this data could be harnessed to develop models that could be used to alert clinicians about individuals at increased risk for HIV infection. So the goal of each of our projects was to develop models that would be precise and perform well identifying potential candidates for PrEP that could be implemented in care settings down the road. And from my training in general medicine, I'd always been interested in the paradigm of using risk prediction models to identify people for chemoprophylaxis and other areas of medicine So, for example, cardiovascular risk prediction tools is a common way to identify people who may benefit from things like statin medications, and we also use risk prediction tools to identify people at risk for bone fractures, and all these things are really part and parcel of general medicine and preventive health care. And so we, each of us, thought, could you develop that kind of paradigm for HIV prevention and PrEP? Um, So that's interesting that they sort of developed independently to a point. Can you tell us how the two studies, because Douglas, you're, you're an author on both studies, aren't you? Correct. Perhaps you or you or Julia could explain how the two studies are linked and what are the similarities between the studies and the main differences? In terms of similarities, they're, as Doug mentioned, very similar uh, with respect to the overall goal of identifying potential PrEP candidates and healthcare settings. And they were also fairly similar with respect to study design Um, And that was, again, conceived independently. We had both planned to use temporal validation where we split our data by time, developing a model um, in one set of the data and then validating it in the most recent year or years of the data because it gives us a good sense of how the models might perform prospectively during implementation. But we also had some key differences, which was the advantage of coming up with the studies independently. Um, Doug's team evaluated over 40 machine learning algorithms to see which one performed best in predicting HIV risk. And they found that a a variable selection algorithm called LASSO was the winner. Um, And they also externally validated their model in a different healthcare setting, um, specifically an LGBT-focused community health center here in Boston, um, to get a sense of how the algorithm might perform in an independent study population. 
Whereas for the Kaiser Permanente study, um, we had a, a couple things we did differently. Um, one was that we compared a full HIV prediction model that included over 40 variables to simpler models that only included one to six variables that were specifically related to sexual orientation and recent sexually transmitted infection testing and results. And that helped us learn about the added value of including multiple EHR data domains in our full model. And the other thing we did differently was that because we had such a large sample size, we were able to assess model performance uh, by different characteristics, specifically by um, sex and race of the incident HIV cases. Obviously, work with electronic health records is becoming more prevalent, and it's a, it's a very powerful way of working with with large amounts of data and, and lots of different people. and. But are there are numerous ethical issues and privacy concerns about using electronic health records in this type of study and even in this type and sort of in this type of risk production. How did you address these concerns in your research? And how should these issues be taken into account if implementing uh, EHR risk assessment to identify potential candidates for pre-exposure prophylaxis? As with any research that involves personal health records, privacy has to be of the utmost importance. And so we thought about privacy issues from the inception of each of our studies. And for the modeling studies published in the Lancet HIV, all of the patients in the data sets we used to develop and validate the models were not identifiable to us as the researchers. That's a really strong protection against a breach of privacy for these studies. Looking forward about when you might implement these models in healthcare settings with real-world data from patients that would be individually identifiable want to point out that all the EHR data that goes into these models is already freely available to patients and their clinicians in their electronic health records. So it's just taking variables that are in structured fields in someone's electronic health records already. The only new information are the risk estimates that our models might generate for individuals in each healthcare setting. And these estimates could be considered sensitive, of course, but we feel that the sensitivity of these estimates is really based in the stigma around HIV in the sense that risk estimates are used, as I mentioned before, in lots of other preventive health care decision-making in care settings like cardiovascular disease, bone fractures, breast cancer, chemoprophylaxis. And so a lot of the sensitivity of those models, uh, or, or I should say the sensitivity of those models is much less than for a model around HIV. And we acknowledge that that may be the reality, but we also think it's really important to get past that sensitivity and actually engage in the use of these models because it's the way to provide the best quality of preventive health care to the populations that clinicians might serve. So even though the privacy considerations and the ethics of using this kind of sensitive data are really important to consider, we don't think it should halt or deter the use of these models, which can help clinicians provide better care. We do feel that because of the sensitivity, however, it's especially important to engage stakeholders at every stage in this research. And so in terms of thinking about future implementation of these models, our plan is to engage patients, clinicians, public health leaders, uh, ethicists as needed, basically all the important stakeholders who could help us make sure these models are used in the most appropriate sense with attention to privacy, confidentiality, and effectiveness.
comes up time and time again in the HIV response and, some, and has sort of informed it from, from quite early days, the importance of involving stakeholders, patients and people at risk and the affected populations from the outset, which I think is, has been one of the great strengths of the HIV response over the years. So yeah, so you found that uh, you found that to sort of a greater or lesser degree you were able to successfully predict risk, um, but n the risk prediction wasn't wasn't consistent across groups and perhaps worked better in some groups than others. Can you explain a little bit about what factors do you predict predict risk and the different ability for uh, for risk prediction in different groups? Sure. In terms of what factors predict risk, maybe I'll, I'll just give a high-level overview of the kind of variables we included in our models, and then I'll, I'll talk about reliability in different groups. Um, we included a, a lot of different domains, um, demographics, including sex, uh, race, and and also an age, you know, kind of the expected ones, but also um, in the Kaiser Permanente model, we also included uh, where people lived and neighborhood level socioeconomic status. And then also um, clinical history, including prescriptions and laboratory tests and results, um, and uh, things that are not necessarily um, obvious in terms of HIV risk. So some are more obvious than others, like STI testing history. But we also looked at um, psychiatric diagnoses, um, a lot of different um, domains that could potentially be associated with HIV risk. Um, and in terms of reliability for different groups, um, we looked at model performance by sex, first of all, and we found that our model didn't uh, identify any incident HIV cases among women. Um, and it might be that we can't actually predict HIV risk in women using EHR data because their HIV risk is driven by risk factors among their partners, which is not data that are available to us. But it might also be that we just didn't have, because we had so few incident HIV cases in women, we might just not have had enough cases to train our models. Um, so we're hoping in terms of next steps to develop models in settings where uh, we have more data available for women to see if that's something we can actually do. And we also looked at model performance by race. And we did this because existing HIV risk prediction tools have been shown to underestimate HIV risk in black men who have sex with men, who in the US are at disproportionately high risk of acquiring HIV. And we found that our full model performed equally well in identifying incident HIV cases in black compared with white patients, whereas the simpler models that I mentioned earlier that were based only on sexually oriented sexual orientation and STI testing and results tended to predict fewer black than white HIV cases. Um, so we actually, we think this suggests that our full model has the potential to help providers identify black MSM who might benefit from PrEP and who have been so far underrepresented among PrEP users to date in the U.S. Are these models ready to be used now to identify people who might benefit from PrEP? We think so, and we have a couple of projects that are already being started to test how well they perform in care settings. So the first one is a pilot randomized trial at Atrius Health, which is the healthcare setting where the model for the study that I led was developed. And it's a integrated healthcare system in Eastern Massachusetts here in the US. And we're going to provide alerts to clinicians about individual patients who the model flags at being an increased risk for HIV to see if it improves conversations about sexual health in general, 
substance use care, if it improves HIV and STI testing, and then PrEP prescriptions. So that will tell us whether the model that was built in that particular setting is actually effective at improving the quality of care within the same setting. And there's another study that we're collaborating with from Kaiser Permanente, and this time in San Francisco, which is related to the model that Julia led. And it's a similar study seeing if alerting clinicians in the healthcare system improves referrals to their centralized PrEP program and also initiations of PrEP prescriptions in people at the highest strata of risk. So these two projects will build on the models we developed in each healthcare setting. So do these sorts of models have to be sort of bespoke for a particular setting or are they more generalizable to other settings? Based on the work where we tried to transport the model developed at HUS to the independent community health center, as Julia mentioned, what we learned from that is that you might have a decrease in performance if you take a model and transport it elsewhere. And so um, the ideal process is probably to develop models at each healthcare setting to get the highest possible performance, but there's a trade-off in terms of the investment in doing that. And so um, part of our future work is to figure out how those trade-offs end up playing out. Trade-off from the two settings where we developed and tested our model externally was relatively modest, but it's still a, a decrease in performance. So the future will tell us whether you take a big hit in your performance by developing um, a single model that you integrate into healthcare settings at multiple places versus developing local models. When your research uh, was published online a couple of months back, it gained quite a lot of attention. What were people most interested in about your studies? Well, we were contacted by a, a number of clinicians and researchers who were interested in learning more about how they might be able to use our approach in their own healthcare settings. Um, including building similar models with their own data or adapting our existing models um, for their use or validating our models in their systems. And then we also spoke with uh, some lay media, including the New York Times, where the reporter was particularly interested in exploring some of the questions you raised about how patients and providers might feel about um, this line of work of using EHR data to identify PrEP candidates. But overall, the response has been pretty enthusiastic, and I think that's because we all know that what we've been doing to scale up PrEP thus far in the U.S. has clearly been insufficient, and um, not only insufficient overall, but also inequitable. And I think people are excited to see new strategies being developed and implemented um, to help scale up PrEP in the U.S. One other thing that I've seen people reference a little bit recently is how there's a bit of a fear that the use of this sort of re risk prediction approach might replace the conversations that would naturally happen between care providers and people who might be at risk. Do you see that it's either risk prediction through this sort of model or that conversation between care provider or should the two work together? We had envisioned this as a way to promote discussions about PrEP. Um, so ideally those discussions would happen at every primary care visit. But Unfortunately, that's not realistic given um, the number of competing health priorities that primary care and other providers are um, thinking about as well as patients are thinking about. Um, so this was a way not to um, replace the conversations that are already happening, but to promote additional conversations in the subset of patients who are most likely to benefit from them. 
And then just finally, what are the next steps in your research? What's, what's coming in the pipeline? So the epidemic in the U.S. is uh, most heavily concentrated in the southeastern United States and also amongst socioeconomically disadvantaged populations. And so we're hoping to do more work in those populations and build models and implement them. And we have a couple of projects that speak to that goal. The first is to develop a model in partnership with a set of public health experts in Jefferson County, which is in Alabama, in the heart of the southeastern U.S., where there's a dense HIV epidemic. And this is a project as part of the United States initiative to end the HIV epidemic. So this will be funded through that initiative. We're also going to develop and implement a model at OCHIN, which is a national network of community health centers that serve disadvantaged populations. And so they have many, many health centers around the U.S., and they utilize a centralized electronic health record platform. So we're going to test the strategy as to whether a single model can serve the needs of many different communities around the country at these health centers. And finally, we're working with public health experts and researchers in Duval County, Florida, which is also in the southeastern United States. And that will be specifically to develop a model using data on women, given some of the limitations of the models thus far. Group that we're collaborating with there are experts in women's preventive health care. And so we're hoping to use the electronic health records data in that county to develop a better model for that underserved population. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, thank you for joining me today on Contributions Podcast. And uh, I look forward to seeing what happens next. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks very much.